0: I bet daily friendship with that bottle attracts more people to advertising than any salary you could dream of. That's why I got in. This is a clip from Mad Men, which aired on AMC from the year 2007 to 2015. So enjoy it. Doing my best here. You're not. You don't know how to drink your whole generation. You drink for the wrong reasons. You're listening to Roger Sterling, played by John Slattery. As he's educating, his younger counterpart, Don Draper, played by John Hamm. My generation, we drink because it's good. Because it feels better than unbuttoning your collar. Because we deserve it. On why his generation We drink because it's what men do. seems to understand something better than Don's. What about shaky hands? I see a lot of that too with you boys. No joke. You're kind with your gloomy thoughts and your worries. You're all busy licking some imaginary wound. Not all imaginary. Yeah, boohoo. I watched Mad Men at the height of my drinking career, and I remember placing a lot of glorification around what I saw on the screen. Portraying the 1960s and showing us that, holy crap, what we do now as it relates to alcohol in the workplace is nothing compared to what they did in 1960. Then, on the same note, as someone struggling at the time with substance use disorder finding some sort of refuge in this understanding, some sort of hall pass for the way that I drank. A lot of my drinking was tied to my work, and I took a lot of pride in my ability to drink often and drink a lot. Too much pride, I'm afraid. Today's episode is the first in a series on how to build a sober, positive workplace. Today we focus on the things... I wish my colleagues would have known about my sobriety. This is the Show Up and Stay podcast. I'm your host, Deanne Knighton. Some humans don't drink. Some humans don't drink because of religious reasons. Some humans don't drink because they have a family history and have made a conscious choice not to repeat generational trauma. Some humans don't drink because they sought treatment and are in active recovery from substance use disorder. Some humans just don't like to drink. Some humans are on medication that react negatively with alcohol. Some humans don't drink because they're pregnant. Some humans do drink, but choose not to at work for varying reasons, maybe including wanting to stay in control of their behaviors, not impact their professionalism in any way. Some humans don't drink because they are taking an intentional break, like dry January. Some humans don't drink because they're allergic to alcohol. Some humans don't drink with coworkers because they choose not to. Some humans don't drink because they hit a rock bottom and had to claw their way out. Some humans don't drink because they went through a period where they considered their drinking in the gray area and decided to make the tough decision to leave alcohol behind. Some humans like to talk about why they aren't drinking. Some humans don't. Some need to talk about it, but don't due to stigma. Some may want to quit, but don't know where to start. Some may want to quit, but fear they won't be able to. Some people don't want to talk about it at work because they're still not sure if they're going to make it. They're in raw skin. They're trying to figure this out. They don't trust themselves yet. Some don't want to talk about it because they fear judgment. Some carry immense shame, culturally enforced shame, for the fact that they cannot drink safely. Some who don't drink have lost friendships because of it. Some who don't drink have times they have felt very isolated because of it. And some humans don't drink for social justice reasons. Some humans do drink, even though they shouldn't even though they know they shouldn't, but they do it to belong. Ultimately, does it matter why some people don't drink at work? The short answer is maybe, but to who and why? For many adults, work can account for the majority of social interaction. Companies that build teams with meaningful connections to one another can improve retention rates, workforce productivity, and job satisfaction. There is a reason to create community building outside of the workplace for those that work together. But unfortunately, culturally, this has typically always been alcohol centered. Nothing that I'm saying today is meant to be a lecture. I very much feared that the distance that is created between those who drink and those who don't is part of the reason that we have so many issues around it. How do we figure out how to bridge that a little bit? How do I somehow figure out how to make the fact that I don't drink not mean something to you about you? Because it doesn't. But I remember when I was drinking, when I would encounter people who didn't drink. It said something to me. First of all, I didn't necessarily want to drink around them because I feared their judgment of me. And lastly, I would make bad jokes like, don't trust a person you can't have a drink with. Ugh, yeah. I recently had a job where I was the oldest in the office that I worked in. I was one of the oldest across the company. We were working with people typically between the ages of 24 to 29 in a very high-stress sales environment, and drinking was a big part of it. I started there after I got sober, and I was horrified. I was still not really in a place Of fully embracing my sobriety or really being ready to talk to anybody about it, let alone a stranger. But I also knew that as I moved to a new state and took on this new role, that I was gonna have to figure out ways to navigate conversations around drinking because it was sales. And this is what we do. It was also a tool that I had used as a sales leader many times to connect with my younger employees. Being able to buy them a drink was a kind of personal touch that I could put on the relationship that helped create some loyalty and just some sense of, hey, we know each other and I got you and I see you as a human. I mean, I know now that there's other ways to do that, but at the time I didn't really think there was. So I started in this new role and it was tough. And there's a lot of reasons for why it was tough. But I'm not going to get into that detail other than just say that I was definitely very stressed out, but I encountered a situation fairly early on where I was going to be attending a conference out of state and typically in the sales world, especially for young adults, out of state conferences, yeah, they're work, but they're also meant to be a bit of a reward to be a place where people can let their hair down, connect with their counterparts, maybe in ways that they don't do in the workplace. And I just, I knew this factor and was really, was really anxious about what it would mean for me. I had told people that I didn't drink. It had already come up. And the reason that I gave for that was that I was one year away from being 40 and just decided to take a break, try and get in good shape. I used health as my reason you know, figuring that people can choose to give up gluten, even if they don't have celiac disease, or they might decide to kick dairy, even if they don't have an allergy. Why couldn't I do the same with alcohol? And it sort of worked, but I don't know. It really kept things at a distance and it just kind of wasn't something that was going to go away. As I was prepping for this conference that I mentioned, I got the information about how they do the housing. As a cost-saving measure, They typically had two employees share a room. I immediately felt uncomfortable with this. I was a 39-year-old woman who had spent a lot of time in sales and, you know, had managed large teams of people and millions and millions of dollars. And I just felt really uncomfortable about this. And the biggest reason I felt uncomfortable, there's a lot of them, but the number one is because of my codependence. I was really worried that I was going to ruin some poor young girl's time on this trip because they would be stuck with the boring sober lady. Not to mention all of the other reasons why this is problematic. That was the one that my brain at that time focused on. I don't want to be the boring lady. That error in thought is one of many that I've had to work to correct to make sure that I can maintain my sobriety in the long run. That's white knuckling. That's not really accepting yourself fully. That's shame-based. However, I used that motivation to talk to my really new boss, full of fear, having to say, I don't want to look like the princess. I'm here to work hard. I'm really, (laughs) but I don't feel comfortable sharing a room. I immediately just wondered what this meant, what this looked like for me, what this said about me that somehow I wasn't willing to be in the trenches. I had sort of good reasons for it. I mean, ultimately, I still believe it was the right thing. And it probably made me look like a highly boundaried woman who valued herself, even though that wasn't technically what was going on. Of course, they accommodated me. Of course, it was fine. There were some incidents on the trip, including one particular coworker telling me to try his drink that was in a coffee cup so that I would assume it was a type of coffee only to drink it and get a nice taste of red wine yeah that sucked there was a lot of taunting around the fact that I didn't drink or trying to find out when I would drink again because it did just feel like that safe space for people and I got it I really did I did my best to navigate it but it was tough There was a level of acceptance, though, that surprised me in other ways. And actually, the more open I got about it, the more acceptance I found. And during the course of my time with the organization, I became more and more comfortable with myself as a sober person. I did a lot of work on myself. And so I was able to kind of come into my identity and just be more comfortable talking about the fact that I'm a person who shouldn't drink alcohol and not really worrying too much about it. Still, it's hard for people sometimes, and it did play into my feelings of outsidedness and potential that maybe this was something that was holding me back from being able to really integrate into this new company. But I learned something really big over time as I sought therapy and did more work on myself and came to understand my incredibly codependent relationship not only with people in my past, but also with my identity as a working person and with the organizations and the bosses that I've worked for in my past, that there was something wrong. And some of the things that I had experienced leading up to my sobriety and my past work reflected that when I looked closely at it. I had built too much around my work life. I had not set boundaries. I had not taken care of myself at all because I hated myself. I valued everyone else's experience over mine and I hadn't really built up appropriate skills of how to connect with people with the exception of that one easy neutralizing tool of alcohol. I became more and more embodied during the years there and I became more and more specific about my own needs and every single time that I spoke up for myself, Despite my absolute horror in doing so, I was amazed at how responsive people were. I was amazed at how much more confident I felt because I wasn't devaluing myself. I wasn't feeling like I had to create unrealistic ways to connect with people because this was just work. I finally had an appropriate relationship with the idea of work. According to an article in The Atlantic called Drinking Too Much is an American Problem, they described the fact that from 1999 to 2017, the number of alcohol related deaths has doubled to more than 70,000 a year. The pandemic had at least a quarter of Americans drinking more than they had to cope with stress in the past. While other countries like Britain and Russia had actually seen alcohol use drop in recent years, America has still been holding strong. And when I hear Roger Sterling lecturing Don on the softness of his generation, it feels a little too familiar to conversations I hear floating in the air these days. America's relationship with alcohol is extreme. And that's the part that makes it different than the way that it's been handled in some of the other countries. This is also outlined in that Atlantic article. We overcompensate and make drastic adjustments. But then in these drastic adjustments, we somehow seem to see the same problems cycling back but worse. Alcohol is no different. In fact, I want to do a whole episode on this. So let's close this up today with the following. This is an open letter to my colleagues. I am not that much different from you. A few factors involving genetics, trauma, and living far too long with undiagnosed depression, anxiety, and ADHD Led me to a breaking point with alcohol. However, when I was on the other side of this issue, trying to fight my way towards sobriety, none of this was clear to me. In the depths, I was horrified of stigma and social rejection that would come with quitting. I could not imagine this shift in identity because, unfortunately, I had built my entire life around it. I worked hard and built a career right next to you, seemingly successful. Slowly, over time, the formula was collapsing on itself, and I waited far too long to get out and get the help I needed. When I returned to work as a sober person, things felt very different to me. I felt exposed and a little shaky. But with time, I found my sea legs and I was able to navigate and see things more clearly. And it was hard and it was lonely. So a few things I wanted to share today that I have learned now being on the other side of this issue. This is from a person who definitely didn't used to trust sober people. These are the things that I wish my colleagues would have known about my participation in events tied to alcohol. First, I came in here tonight fully prepared for judgment and questions. But if you ask me what I would like, and I say a Diet Coke, and you don't respond with surprise, then you've just handed me the gift of normalization. You've also demonstrated to those around you that there's nothing weird about that choice. With this small shift, you have put me at ease and likely changed the course of the night for me. There are many reasons why people may choose not to drink. And if we build the type of rapport where I want to talk to you more about it, then I will. Please don't make it the center of the conversation to the group I've just joined. Please don't continually ask me if I'm sure I don't want to drink. I know this is a tough one. We're accustomed to asking, hey, what are you drinking? It's a way we've connected with each other in the past. But once again, this slight shift away from our knee-jerk conditioning to engage me differently will help me put my guard down. Do not make assumptions that I do not want to participate in a work-related event because it'll be alcohol-centric and I don't drink. Let me make my own decisions and better yet, Maybe consider some alternative planning that feels more inclusive. Also, please make sure to have some non-alcoholic options available. However, please don't make me the scapegoat for it. Please don't make me the odd person out that means we have to do something different than we would normally do because of me. That is like dropping a match on my gasoline puddle of shame. I am not judging you. I am trying to belong as best I can. We all are. I'm worried about what you will think of me. My decision not to drink is about me, and it does not have to mean anything about you, unless you let it. I'm not that different from you. Some predisposing factors applied to, likely, a very similar path that you took. Led me to a different outcome. Small choices can have big ripples. Yours, Deanne hey, sober listeners, I really need your help. I want to create a more inclusive list about what it would look like to create a sober, positive workplace. So think back. You can email me at info at or you can participate in the conversation on Instagram. I'll be starting a thread there at showupandstayorg. Thanks for being here today. Original music created and produced by the wickedly talented Katie Hare.